You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, we come to you with um, open hands and humble hearts, knowing that uh, we do not deserve even the crumbs under your table, but you're a merciful God. And I thank you that um, you are a God of history and that you've been involved in the lives of people throughout history to bring people to you, to your son. I thank you for the witness of Anne Askew, and I pray that her life and testimony may continue to have effect today in our own lives, and may we be encouraged to follow in her um, in her steadfastness and faithfulness to Scripture. In your name, amen. So today's woman is Anne Askew, and we finally got to women of the English Reformation. And the last three weeks, we've been in the German uh, Reformation. Can you see? Okay. Um, this book by Paul Zoll, I know you all know who Paul Zoll is, um, he's written a book called Five Women of the English Reformation. So there are other women of the English Reformation if you want to continue your own study. Um, so our woman, Anne Askew, um, uh, was born into privilege in 1521. Her father was Sir William Askew and a member of Parliament. She was one of five children, and in England was called a gentlewoman. We aren't sure when Anne converted to Protestantism, but we see Protestant leanings and connections in her family that may have influenced her. Her sister Jane married a prominent Protestant man, and her brother Edward served with Thomas Cranmer. Unfortunately, Anne's father forced her to marry a man by the name of Thomas Kim. I'm not sure if I'm saying the last name correctly, but we'll just go with Kim. Um, he had been engaged to her sister Martha, but unfortunately Martha died before they ever married, and so her father forced her to marry this man. Uh, Thomas was a staunch Roman Catholic, and it was said that after her conversion in conflict with priests in their town called Lincoln, and I'll tell you about one incident, um, that her husband acted violently toward her. One time, so one of the incidents where she got in trouble with the uh, priest, one time Anne was in the Lincoln Cathedral at the back of the nave reading her Bible by herself. And when the priest saw her, they came up to her and rebuked her for reading her Bible, in which she rebuked them right back. So if you've been here or have listened to the lessons, you'll know that all of our women had gumption <laughs> and uh, were fighters. So she got in a little bit of trouble in Lincoln, and Anne's biographer, John Bell, heard that Anne had sought a divorce. Um, she did, in fact, leave Lincoln, her husband, and perhaps their two children. We don't know anything about their children other than they had to. Perhaps they died um, as children. We just don't know. Um, but she goes to London where she uses her maiden name, Askew, instead of her married name. And it is believed that her husband was later responsible for her examinations by the Privy Council. So the council records show that in June 1546, the council had sent letters to both Thomas and his wife Anne, giving them 14 days to appear before them. When they appeared, uh, they wrote in their record of this um, event, 
quote, his wife who refused him to be her husband without any honest allegation. So they sent him home because she refused to even acknowledge that that was her husband. Anne came to London to join other Protestant reformers and join debates of belief, and it was believed that she was part of Queen Parr's, Catherine Parr's circle of Protestant women, which is perhaps how she became known to the bishop in London. So I'm going to pause here and provide a little historical context. Um, I'm not, yes? So she left after her husband beat her? Is that what it said? They they don't know a lot of what happened. The word violently is used in the biography about how he acted toward her. We don't know that he actually beat her, but um, she did she did leave him to go to London. So um, I'm going to pause here. Um, I'm not an English Reformation uh, scholar, but this is the little bit that I know. Um, I used to think that uh, Protestantism began in England when King... Henry VIII um, asked for a divorce, um, but that's not—it's uh, not that simple, right? Um, there was a time of great flux between Catholicism and Protestantism during King Henry's reign. Henry had been staunchly Roman Catholic, even writing against Luther in 1521, defending uh, the Catholic Church, for which the Pope gave King Henry um, the title "Defender of the Faith." Um, and perhaps if you notice my title of Anne Askew, there is a little irony in the title of this lesson um, because I call her Defender of the Faith. Um, Henry bended to his fleshly desires um, or whoever had his ear at the moment. So depending on if he wanted a divorce, who he wanted to marry, or whoever his counselors were at that time, whether they be Catholic or Protestant, that's how he bended um, in his reign. By 1538, a proclamation was issued that no one could discuss the sacrament. So by this time, um, near the end of King Henry's reign, it's moved toward a more Catholicism um, bent. So by this point in 1538, we have this proclamation. The next year, Parliament passed the Act of the Six Articles upholding Roman Catholic doctrines, such as transubstantiation. And it made Protestant views illegal. So basically, it made Roman Catholicism the religion of England. Um, just in case you don't know, transubstantiation means that Christ's literal body and blood were in the element. So when you ate the bread, drank the uh, wine, you were literally eating his body and drinking his blood. Um, so if you disputed this, it meant that you could be charged with heresy, as we'll find out with Anne. Um, by 1543, Henry passed an act for the advancement of true religion, which, get, get this, forbid men and women to read the Bible unless they were of noble birth. So unless you were of noble birth, you could not read the Bible. So it was within that period that Anne was arrested. She was arrested three times in March 1545, June 1545, and June 1546 on the basis of the six articles, in particular her view of the Lord's Supper. Um, but there's also a hint that the bishops probably thought that she um, could give them names of women on court, including the queen, who had Protestant leanings. So that also was in a mix. The records of the council from May 24, 1546, had this to say about Anne. She was very obstinate and heady in reasoning of matters of religion, wherein she showed herself to be of a naughty opinion. Seeing no persuasion of good reason could take place, she was sent to Newgate to remain there to answer the law. 
So Anne records for us two examinations, and this is going to be the meat of the lesson. Uh, the first examination is related to her first arrest in March 1545, and the second one to her arrest in June 1546, before her death. There is some ambiguity related to the dating of these arrests, but we're just going to go with those dates. What I love about Anne is that she doesn't allow the bishop, the council, or anyone else to have the last word of, um, of her life, about her life. She won't leave the interpretation and telling of these events up to historical chance. Rather, she narrates her own story and leaves behind her own record of what happened. So this allows us to hear and see through Anne's eyes about what takes place. So the first examination occurs in a London prison where she's imprisoned for 12 days before her cousin Christopher Britton comes to bail her out. The second examination occurs over a two-day period. This time she is confined in a different London prison called Newgate. She's accused of heresy and condemned without a quest, which was contrary to the law for a gentlewoman. Day two of her second examination, she is moved to the Tower of London, where she is placed on the rack in order to get names of women at court. With the exception of screams of pain at one point, Anne doesn't say a word while being racked. The first person to publish her examinations was John Bell. It is believed that after her death, Dutch merchants who were there present at her death smuggled her writings overseas to Bell, who was living in Germany to escape persecution. So he publishes her examinations and her other writings. So she was a poet and she wrote ballads. Um, and he publishes them with his own commentary in order to... Um, put her examinations within a context of that she was a true Christian martyr. Um, so he did not like the Roman Catholic Church. Later, John Fox, have you all heard of John Fox? He's a historian um, who published his, uh, her examinations without commentary in his history of the English Reformation, also known as the Book of Martyrs. So there's two um, accounts, two uh early publishings of her examinations. So what I'm going to do for the majority of our time is just read her own words. Um, I think that they're powerful, and I encourage you to listen for and notice how Scripture is the supreme authority for Anne. So I'm going to begin with some excerpts from her first examination and then read more fully her second examination. So this is the title page of John Bell's um, first examination of uh, and ask you if you can see it. And I'm going to give you a little explanation of the picture in the middle. Um, I'm using mostly this book, uh, The Examinations of Anne Askew, edited by Elaine Balin, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, so he, so she says that what you see in the middle is a woman clothed as an early Christian martyr holding the Bible in a martyr's palm, trampling the papist beast underfoot. You see the papist beast with the crown? So that's the uh, cover of her first examination. So uh, these are just a couple of excerpts. So the first excerpt. Thirdly, this is Anne speaking. Thirdly, he asked me wherefore I said that I had rather to read five lines in the Bible than to hear five masses in the temple. I confess that I said no less. Eighthly, he asked me if I did not think that private masses did help souls departed. And I said it was great idolatry to believe more in them than in the death of which Christ died for us. Then another uh, point in her examinations. Then he asked me what my faith and belief was in that matter. 
I answered him, I believe as the scripture doth teach me. Then inquired he of me, what if the scripture do say that it is the body of Christ? My answer was still, I believe as the scripture informeth me. And upon this argument, he tarried a great while to have driven me to make him an answer to his mind. Howbeit, I would not but concluded this with him, that I believe therein and in all other things as Christ and his holy apostles did leave them. Then he asked me why I had so few words. And I answered, God hath given me the gift of knowledge, but not of utterance. As Solomon saith, that a woman of few words is a gift of God. So if you can't tell already, I think you soon will that Anne had quick wit, smart wit. She was sometimes sarcastic and provocative and most especially confident in the word of God. So her answer is always, I believe as scripture does tell me or doth tell me. Her locale in Christ and in the word of God gave her confidence and made her fearless before her accusers. Whether or not Anne saw this as irony, she records for us what I think we can see as irony. It's a statement by a man named Dr. Standish. Now, during these examinations, there were people coming in and out examining her. So it just wasn't one person. So this doctor uh, basically mocks her by saying that if she is so knowledgeable about Scripture, then she should interpret St. Paul's passage concerning women interpreting the Scriptures, especially, quote, where so many wise learned men were. So he basically says, if you're so good at interpreting Scripture and knowing Scripture uh, to support your views of the Lord's Supper, then why don't you tell us what Paul says um, concerning women? So they mocked her, they teased her, they... It was really um, an interrogation. Then did she did not. I don't think she did. She was quiet a lot, and they they asked her to to speak several times, and she wouldn't give an answer, or she would give a short answer. So, um, yeah, she was very maybe wise too, and sometimes not saying certain things. Uh, but she does. When she does speak, she she's very bold. Um, so she, you'll hear that in the second examination. That's a good question. Uh, so Bishop Bonner, who did most of the interrogating, prepared a document for Anne to sign, confessing the Roman Catholic faith. And after reading the document to Anne, they asked her to sign it. Upon which she said, "Quote: I believe so much, therefore, as the Holy Scripture doth agree unto. Wherefore I desire you that ye will add that thereunto." Then he answered that I should not teach him what he should write. So she said, okay, basically, if you're going to have me sign this document, put in there a clause that says, I believe as much as the scripture doth, doth say. And um, he did not like her telling her him what he should write in this document. So she eventually signed the document, but she signed it in this way. I and ask you to believe all manner things contained in the faith of the Catholic Church. Then, because I did add unto it the Catholic Church, he flung into his chamber in a great fury. So why did that make the bishop mad? Um, quoting from Elaine in this book, she says, For Anne had thus implied her dissent from Roman Catholic doctrine and her belief that the Reformed Church was the true Catholic or universal church. So she's just goading them, you know, like, I believe as long as the scriptures do say and according to the Catholic Church, not the Roman Catholic Church. But Anne was able to escape the bishop's fury the first time because, as she tells it, my cousin Brittany desired him to take me as a woman, 
and not to set my weak womanly wit to his lordship's great wisdom. So her cousin appeals to the fact that, oh, she's just a woman. Her poor womanly wit, it doesn't compare to your lordship's great wisdom. Um, and that eventually, she thinks, gets her off the hook, although she would sit in jail for 12 days alone after this examination. So she then begins her record of the second examination by giving an overview of the event. So I'm going to read in just a minute uh, uh, her confession. But this, these two paragraphs are from just the overview of what happens in 1546, the second time she's arrested. So she says, Then the bishop said he would speak with me familiarly. I said, So did Judas when he unfriendly betrayed Christ. Then desired the bishop to speak with me alone, but that I refused. He asked me why. I said that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter should stand after Christ and Paul's doctrine. Then later she says, then I was commanded to stand aside. In conclusion, we could not agree. Then they made me a bill of the sacrament, willing me to set my hand thereunto, but I would not. Then on this Sunday, I was sore sick, thinking no less than to die. Therefore, I desired to speak with Latimer. It would not be. Then I was sent to Newgate in my extremity of sickness, for in all my life afore was I never in such pain. Thus the Lord strengthen you in the truth. Pray, pray, pray. So what now follows after this overview is her actual confession. So the meat of her confession. Let's see if I can read and hold the microphone at the same time. So I'm going to read. Um, she actually records two confessions. So I'm going to read part of one and part of the second one. The confession of me and ask you for the time I was in Newgate concerning my belief. I find in the scriptures that Christ took the bread and gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body, which shall be broken for you. Meaning in substance, his own very body, the bread being thereof and only sign or sacrament. For after like manner of speaking, he said he would break down the temple and in three days build it up again, signifying his own body by the temple as St. John declareth it, and not the stony temple itself. So that the bread is but a remembrance of his death or a sacrament of thanksgiving for it, whereby we are knit unto him by communion of Christian love. Although there be many that cannot perceive the true meaning thereof, for that veil that Moses put over his face before the children of Israel, that they should not see the clearness thereof, I perceive the same veil remaineth to this day. But when God shall take it away, then shall these blind men see. For it is plainly expressed in the history of Baal in the Bible that God dwelleth in no things material. O king, saith Daniel, be not deceived, for God will be in nothing that is made with hands of men. Oh, what stiff-necked people are these that will always resist the Holy Ghost. But as their fathers have done, so do they, because they have stony hearts. Written by me, and ask you that neither wish death, nor yet fear his might, and as Mary is one that is bound towards heaven. Truth is laid in prison, the law is turned to wormwood, and there can be no right judgment go forth. And then she goes on. I'll read you this second. Confession. The second confession, she begins saying, I am ask you of good memory. So she's saying this is according to my good memory of what happened. Um, I'm going to skip down where she says, 
But they both say, and also teach it for a necessary article of faith, that after those words be once spoken, there remaineth no bread, but even the selfsame body that hung upon the cross on Good Friday, both flesh, blood, and bone. To this belief of theirs say, I nay. For then were our common creed false, which saith that he sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from thence shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Lo, this is the heresy that I hold, for it mu- and for it must suffer the death. But as touching the holy and blessed supper of the Lord, I believe it to be a most necessary remembrance of his glorious sufferings and death. Moreover, I believe as much therein as my eternal and only Redeemer, Jesus Christ, would I should I believe. Finally, I believe all those scriptures to be true, whom he hath confirmed with his most precious blood. Yea, and as St. Paul saith, those scriptures are sufficient for our learning and salvation, that Christ hath left here with us. So that I believe we need no unwritten verities to rule his church with. Therefore, look what he hath said unto me with his own mouth in his holy gospel. That have I, with God's grace, closed up in my heart. And my full trust is that it shall be a lantern to my footsteps. There be some do say that I deny the Eucharist or sacrament of thanksgiving. But those people do untruly report of me. For I both say and believe it, that if it were ordered like as Christ instituted and left it, a most singular comfort it were unto us all. But as concerning your mass, as it is now used in our days, I do say and believe it to be the most abdominal idol that is in the world. For my God will not be eaten with teeth, neither yet death he again. And upon these words that I have now spoken will I suffer death. O Lord, I have more enemies now than there be hairs on my head. Yet, Lord, let them never overcome me with vain words, but fight thou, Lord, in my stead. For on thee I cast my care. With all the spite they can imagine, they fall upon me, which am thy poor creature. Yet, sweet Lord, let me not set by them which are against thee, for in thee is my whole delight. And, Lord, I heartily desire of thee that thou will of thy most merciful goodness forgive them that violence which they do and have done unto me. Open also thou their blind hearts, that they may hereafter do that thing in thy sight, which is only acceptable before thee. And to set forth thy ver- that verity aright without all vain fantasies of sinful men, so be it, O Lord, so be it. So the Roman Catholic doctrine, which taught that you are eating the, the flesh of Jesus Christ, drinking his blood, and says, no, you're, Christ is not going to die again. And I confess with the creeds that he is sitting on the right hand of God, the Almighty. And it's for that belief that we take for granted that cost Anne Askew her life. So now I'm going to read to you. This is what she then says happened, the sum of her condemnation. Are you all following? (laughs) I'm having also to translate from Old English or Middle English, so um, forgive me if I say a couple of things wrong. So they said to me that I was a heretic and condemned by the law if I would stand in mine opinion. I answered that I was no heretic, neither yet deserved I any death by the law of God. But as concerning the faith which I uttered and wrote to the council, I would not, I said, deny it because I knew it true. Then would they needs know if I would deny the sacrament to be Christ's body and blood of Christ. Yea, 
For the same Son of God that was born of the Virgin Mary is now glorious in heaven and will come again from thence at the latter day like as he went up. And as for that ye, ye call your God, it is a piece of bread. For a more proof thereof, let it lie in the box but three months, and it will be moldy, and so turn to nothing that is good. Whereupon I am persuaded that it cannot be God. After that they willed me to have a priest, and then I smiled. Then they asked me if it were not good. I said, I would confess my faults unto God. So I don't need a priest to confess my faults. I'll confess it to God. For I was sure that he would hear me with favor. And so we were condemned with a quest. My belief, which I wrote to the council, was this, that the sacramental bread was left, left us to be received with thanksgiving in remembrance of Christ's death, the only remedy of our souls to recover, and that thereby we also receive the whole benefits and fruits of his most glorious passion. Then would they need know whether the bread in the box were God or no. I said, God is a spirit and will be worshipped in spirit and truth. Then they demanded, will you plainly deny Christ to be in the sacrament? I answered that I believe faithfully the eternal Son of God not to dwell there. In witness whereof, I recited again the history of Baal. And then she quotes from Daniel and Acts and Matthew. I neither wish death nor yet fear his might. God hath the praise thereof with thanks. She's a bold woman, isn't she? And now here at the end, it says the effect of her examination. And this is going to talk about her time on the rack. And I brought ah, a picture of what that would have meant in that time where they were laid and tied up by their wrists and their feet and then stretched until their um, bones were dislocated from their sockets and their tendons tore. And it was um, a very painful um torture so she says on tuesday i was sent from newgate to the sign of the crown whereas master rich and the bishop of london with all their power and flattering words were about to persuade me from god but i did not esteem their glossing pretenses and then she describes all the people that come and how they uh, tried to get out of her the names of the people at court that i mentioned the women at court and who gave her money and who else was a protestant um, and so she wouldn't say, so they put her on the rack. Um, so she says, then they did put me on the rack because I confess no ladies or gentlewomen to be of my opinion. And thereon they kept me a long time. And because I lay still and did not cry, my Lord Chancellor and Master Rich took pains to rack me with their own hands till I was nigh dead. Then the lieutenant caused me to be loosed from the rack. Incontently, I swounded. And then they recovered me again. After that, I sat two long hours reasoning with my Lord Chancellor upon the bare floor. After she was racked and dislocated and tortured, then she sat on the bare floor for two hours and reasoned with them some more. She says, Whereas he, with many flattering words, persuaded me to leave my opinion. But my Lord God, I think his everlasting goodness gave me grace to persevere and will do, I hope, to the very end. Then was I brought to, an, to a house and laid in a bed with as weary and painful bones as ever had patient Job. I thank my Lord God thereof. Then my Lord Chancellor sent me word, if I would leave my opinion, I should want nothing. If I would not, I should forth to Newgate and so be burned. 
I sent him again word that I would rather die than to break my faith. Thus the Lord opened the eyes of their blind hearts that the truth may take place. Farewell, dear friend, and pray, pray, pray. Her last words. Anne had to be carried in a chair because she couldn't walk. And they chained her so that she would sit up right and not slump over. And they took her to the stake to be burned. There she was burned with several other Protestants. And she was the age 25. And she died in 1546, the same year that Luther died. And as I mentioned, Anne had written several ballads. She was um, a poet. And I'd like to end this part about Anne with the last lines of the ballad called, I'm a woman poor and blind. She says, Because that now I have no space, the cause of my death truly to show, I trust hereafter by God's holy grace, that all faithful men shall it plainly know. To thee, O Lord, I bequeath my spirit, which art the workmaster of the same. It is thine, Lord, therefore, to take it of right. My carcass on earth I leave, from whence it came. Although to ashes it be now burned, I know thou canst rise it again. And in the same likeness that thou it formed, in heaven with thee evermore to remain. What a testimony, huh? That's our Anne Askew. And so I just want to conclude with um, two retrievals from Anne, but really from all the four women, um, since this is the last lesson of the series. Um, we at BSIN on Friday gathered for a time of worship and prayer to discuss the question, what does it mean to be a re reformational divinity school? And behind that question is really the question, what does it mean to be reformational? What does it mean for us at the Advent to be reformational, right? Um, and there were several answers given to this question, but the most prominent answer, and I think the most prominent theme in all of our four women, is the centrality and authority of Scripture. And all of our women, ending with, it, with Anne, ask you, we can point to the cause of their personal transformation and their role in the Reformation as being due to the reading of Scripture and thereby the recognition of its authority over the Roman Catholic Church. There is a commitment to reforming the church according to the word of God. For Anne, this commitment cost her her life. As scripture takes precedent in our lives, there are three things you will notice. First, you will find and meet Jesus Christ in the scriptures. And by meeting Christ, you are meeting none other than God himself. The word of God made flesh. The incarnate word, God from God, light from light. There's not a different God behind the back of Jesus Christ. Rather, in Christ, God is turning his face to you and to me. We pray all the time for Philip. May his face shine upon you. May you look upon him. In Jesus Christ, God looks on us with favor. Second, when you meet Christ in the scriptures, you will begin to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. We cannot interpret scripture on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to guide us and to help us. Uh, a professor at Beeson, Carl Beckwith, said this weekend that we approach scripture with open hands and we proceed with humility and prayer, recognizing we need God's help to interpret God's word, for it is his word. And third, our lives will be transformed by the renewing of the Holy Spirit and his truth. And all four women that we've looked at were transformed by the word of God. Their lives were a living testimony of God's word.
And so if we're going to have a reformation today in our denominations and in our Christian American Christianity, um, we must first have a personal reformation that comes through the reading of Scripture. God reforms his church by his word, and God transforms us by reading his word. So I encourage you and urge you and myself to never give up the reading of God's word. It has power. It is the living word of God. And Paul writes this in 2 Timothy, and listen to it for you. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Don't stop. <laughs> Just because you're a Christian, don't stop. Um, because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Only Scripture makes us wise in faith through Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You want to be equipped for good work. Get in God's word. Second and last, I want to end with Anne's last words. Pray, pray, pray. You want to see a reformation and a renewal? Pray. You want to be able to stand firm in his word when struggles, temptations, and the mighty persuasion of the culture try to push you over? Pray. May you always be, and may I always be, a person who prays. Do y'all have any questions? Or any comments? I was just curious, when you had said earlier, just because we have some close Catholic friends, and they always like make the joke that, like, you know, um, King Henry or whatever changed just because he wanted a divorce. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that was not the only reason. Well, yeah, he initially, from the little knowledge that I have, some of you might have more knowledge, but um, uh, yes, that was his initial break from Rome. But I don't, he was staunchly Catholic. I don't know that, that he ever. I would say converted to Protestant, the Protestant faith. And by the end of his life, he was, um, I mean, Roman Catholicism was kind of the law of the land. Now he was the supreme head. The Pope, he, you know, the Pope wasn't that head. He was the supreme head. So, um, you know, it's not that simple, but yeah, it was, it was, you might have something more to add about it, right? Yeah. And it's, it's tricky because depending on which historian you read, if they're a Protestant or a Catholic, or <laughs> even within Protestantism, are they mm-hmm. an Anglo-Catholic or are they an actual Anglican or you know whatever? You get into all kinds of you know back and forth. The divorce is almost beside the point. I mean that's what broke England officially because the king was ostensibly the head of the church in England. But you had um, John Wycliffe's translation of the Bible into English was already floating through. You saw on Wolf Hall the BBC series that was on PBS a couple years back. There's a really wonderful scene uh, where somebody sneaks a, a Wycliffe translation into church and stands up and reads the first verses of they're John's replaying, Gospel. It's worth watching. I mean, it's yeah. really, it's really terrific. But you had all these undercurrents that were going on anyway. So you mm-hmm. had all these bishops and priests, some of whom were devoutly Roman Catholic. You had others who were already they were reading Luther. Um, they'd already read Erasmus prior to Luther, which was already kind of a big chief in the, in the armor uh, of Rome anyway. So, I mean, I mean, obviously this is not like cookout argument you want to have with your friends. Well, yeah. Really. But I, I think as a matter of just fact, the divorce was, you know, it was almost beside the point. Everything was, um, 
you know, it, there are other historical examples of that. I don't want to try to wreck the, the, the analogy, but there are all these kind of undercurrents taking place anyway. And, and so everybody kind of got tugged along. And so a guy like Cranmer can kind of look at Tom's like he's kind of a toady when he really wasn't because he's just having to do what his boss is saying. And so there's just a weird little push and pull. But all that was happening. Mm-hmm. And so people had, had translations of Luther. And they, um, when Mary takes over after Henry's death, all these people get kicked out. And they go and hang out with a bunch of Calvinists. And their Reformation tendencies increase mm-hmm. even further. And so, well, and there was that brief reign of his son before Mary, between right. Henry and Mary. So he was um, uh, grew up Protestant, and so there was a brief time of Protestantism that then went to Catholicism with Mary, and then back to Protestantism with Elizabeth. And you're right that um, with Wycliffe and others, but you know all of that was illegal. It was being smuggled. So Wycliffe's translation of the New Testament was being uh, was small enough that you could put in a pocket. Um, so yes, there were, it was like what was going on here with the king and the court, then there was something else going on underneath. Um, but at court you had Catholics and Protestants and Elizabeth's mother, Anne Bolin, was a Protestant. Anne Bolin's were staunch Protestants for most Right. Time. And then you had... Cranmer got power through Anne. Right. And then you had Thomas Cromwell, I believe, who was a Protestant. Mm-hmm. So it really depended upon who had, as far as the, from that standpoint, who had the ear of the king and who he was married to at the moment, too. But, yeah, that, I'm glad you provided that yeah. history. But wasn't there also a geopolitical component to it and the fealty to the Pope and, you know, just the general coming, you know, kind of this between France and... Yeah, I mean... Well, there was the tension between the Holy Roman Emperor and... Pope and right. the fact that France was trying to supplant and take back its English territory right. at the same point the Pope Rome was overrun during the time of Henry VIII as well. So these tenuous alliances right. and mm-hmm. they wanted to maintain it. But you know, kicking Catherine to the side doesn't really help maintain any favor with the Orient Roman Emperor. Yeah. And the Reformation wasn't something that just happen at in a matter of a couple of years or 30 years it especially in England it was a very long process um but I you know God God is uh faithful um according to his word and I think we can see a spirit the spirit of God moving and I would say what I said the first week and that being that where uh, Protestantism, Protestantism began in the you know mainline denominations, it's it's suffering here in the United States. The gospel is is uh, not being preached. The word of God has been abandoned, and so I think we need now. The Advent is an exception to that, but um, I think we need to go back to the word of God. Um, our culture, our American culture, has been baptized. We've baptized it and have made it Christian. <laughs> so sometimes it's hard to tell what is the culture and what is Christian. Um, and I think the best way to tell that is being immersed in God's Word, reading it alongside with the Reformers and uh, the early church, um, having those voices of the past. Um, but we need to get back to the Word of God. Um, so I, I think that's the biggest thing from these women that I would share. Oh, yeah. Did I ever go back and like, I guess, admit fault, like, for basically murdering a lot of these people? I mean, did they ever, was anything ever, like, at what point did they, like, 
know, I mean, at least there, we're trying there's to something apologize to record, for like Cromwell, who was somewhat of a secret Protestant, was mm-hmm. eventually, he was killed by Henry as well. In fifth, like Right before. Right, right before, 1543. Mm-hmm. And Henry was on record saying, I really miss that guy. I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Essentially, so. Yeah, but they didn't have our, our complex or apologies the way we do today. Yes. You know, whether whether it's you know, Germany after World War Two or right. yes. they didn't really go through those kind of national moments of healing. Like, like we are trying yeah. to do still. Yeah. That works in Well, I know the bells are tolling, um, but uh, let's end with the Lord's Prayer. How about? Oh, yes. that same thing (laughs) would I be like Peter who denies Christ (laughs) or would I be like in this case Anne Askew who stays committed and um, I think at the end of the day I remember that I belong to Jesus Christ and I don't have to depend on my strength but God's and I pray that we won't ever be put in that situation Um, but God is faithful and I think that that's where we find our hope is not in anything else that we could do. And even if we fell, even if we were to deny Christ, God is a merciful, forgiving God, um, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. And maybe that's just the word that we need to hear today, that we are going to fail. We are, we are failures, but God is a merciful, slow to anger God. Um, he's a good God. He's a good father. Um, so I think thank in her you. Word, she said he poured out his grace, mm-hmm. like for her to be able to. So I think he gives you the grace to go through. Yeah. Your, you know. Yeah. At the moment. Yeah. <laughs> Not before then. It's true. Like, That's thank you. That's really good. Um, let's pray the Lord's prayer together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.